Hi there, and welcome to the Life Saving Gratitude Podcast. This is Bunny Terry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Johanna Medina. And we have, as always, a special guest. This week, it's a bit of a rock star in the food world, Cheryl Alters Jameson. And I don't know why I said a bit of a rock star. She is a rock star. But the best thing about this podcast is that she makes it clear that it's not like she started thinking it like 15 or 16 that she wanted to be a rock star in the food world. She's really clear that it was serendipitous that um, her life became what it is today. There were some really, really hard bumps along the way. But Cheryl is, and with her husband, a four-time James Beard award-winning cookbook writer. But if you get on the Food Network, or if you do a search on Food Network, get on YouTube, um, plug in her name, you'll find out that she is on the Food Network. She's in all sorts of magazines. She has written over 20 cook. She's published over 20 cookbooks. She has a website website called excited about food where she talks about food all the time. She does um, a podcast called heating it up. It's a food radio show. And let me tell you, she is um her books have sold over 2 million copies. Um, she was voted Edible New Mexico's Local Heroes Best Food Writer on two different occasions. And um, if you are a big fan, well, I'm going to say if you're a big fan of food, but if you're a big fan of barbecue or New Mexican food, especially, she's written a really cool book called, published a book called Texas Q, which was 100 recipes for the very best barbecue anywhere. Um, the Perini Ranch Steakhouse book. Um, she wrote a really great book called Tasting New Mexico, which was published on the 100th anniversary of the state of statehood for New Mexico. So, And she's also really active in cooking with kids. So, um, But we don't just talk about food. Um, we talk about life and healing and, and about how um, food and caring for people is healing in its own way. I'm I'm curious because you didn't get to sit in on the interview, Johanna. I'm curious how it felt to you when you listened to it the second time through. Yeah, honestly, I was going to say, I, I mean, yeah, you talk about her, um, you know, her professional experience and her life around food, but I honestly thought this was an episode more about grief and kind of the grief that she's gone through and kind of not overcoming it, but coming through it on the other side and, and how that was for her, because it's just like, you know, her epic love story. And then, and then, you know, having to go through the grief of losing her husband. Um, because I mean, you do know her personally from the cancer foundation, right? That's where your kind of connection started. Yeah. So right. that was yeah. a big part of it as well. Yeah. She is, um, she's very consciously, um, I, I, rebuilding is kind of a funny word, but she's very consciously living her, continuing to live her life, mm -hmm. even um, sort of like Amber Hale, who's going to be a, a repeat guest soon, who lost her son. Um, people who have had Im unimaginable losses are continuing to live their life and and doing it in a really generous and grateful way. So. It, it it was a gift to have her. I was so excited that she agreed to be one of our guests. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a great one. We've definitely, you know, been wanting to get Cheryl on for a long time, and I'm so glad we did, and hopefully we can get her back again, you know, as you always say, so we can talk to her more. You know, all of our guests, I wish we could just have a big party and hang out with all of them because they're all so cool. But Well, and she, we wanted her back in September, and she was like, well, uh, I'm going on a food tour to France, yeah. and then I'm going to go to Egypt. So she talks about all of that, and she's so humble and she's so clear that every day is a gift that this isn't the life she planned but wow is it even better than what she had dreamed of and 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 not to minimize the loss of her husband to not one but two different kinds of cancers so stick through this she has uh, just like everybody else really great tips at the end and um i'm i'm so honored that she agreed to be our guest And I just, I want to tell everybody, thanks for checking in. Thanks for subscribing, reviewing, and rating us wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, We're excited to be here. Welcome everyone. And I'm, this, this is one of the most exciting podcasts I've done because um, our guest is somebody that I've been stalking for a couple of years and um, (laughs) it's, it's finally worked out that we can spend some time together. Our guest today is Cheryl Alters Jameson, who um, many of you will know because she is such a personality in the world of food. Um, she is a, I, I'm going to read directly from your website because it's so perfect. Cheryl is a home cook, cookbook author, and food authority who is passionate about sharing expertise and enthusiasm for exciting food and good eating. And um, the coolest thing about, well, one of the coolest things about Cheryl is that she lives in Santa Fe, outside of Santa Fe, in a converted dairy barn, holy mackerel, where she has a small flock of backyard chickens. I've always wanted some backyard chickens. I'm a farm girl. But um, Cheryl and I connected in an interesting way. Like I said, I've stalked her and um, got her to agree to donate some a Zoom call during the pandemic for the Cancer Foundation for New Mexico. And um, she very graciously agreed. And we're doing that call right now because um, <laughs> she was able to make time for you, my listeners, um, but but the but the things that that you would know about Cheryl, she um, re- has written I, I, I over over twenty cookbooks, uh, published over twenty cookbooks. A lot of them with her husband, Bill Jamison, who is um, who like me um, had cancer and then had complications and did not survive. And um, and that speaks. Um, that explains a lot of her generosity with the Cancer Foundation. But um, between the two of them, um, Bill and Cheryl won over, uh, did you, is it four James Beard Awards? Yes. Yeah. Well, four wow. James Beard Awards. I'm wow. I can't, fortunate. I can't even imagine that. But um, I'm, we're going to post a lot of information about Cheryl. Um, in the podcast transcript and on the website, but I want to get to the to the conversation. Um, how, how did you come to this life, Cheryl? It's it's such a cool way to live. Serendipity is what I usually say. 
I've been very lucky over time. Um, I've learned over the years kind of how to make it up as I go along, I guess I could say. Um, I actually uh, have always loved food and cooking. From the time I was a small kid, I had the, uh, the great luck of having the grandparents with the big gardens. This was back in the Midwest. I'm from Illinois originally. And, you know, I was able to, you know, spend time playing in those gardens and picking uh, produce from them and then having the great um, experience of cooking with my grandparents and to my you know, parents with a lesser extent because they were always busier. But yeah, my grandparents and great grandparents that were alive when I was small took me under their wings and and I did get to, you know, to cook with them. And I always found it such a fun thing. And it just meant, you know, family and sense of community and all of that from the time I was really young. But at the era that I was growing up, you know, like in the, um, the 60s and all, there wasn't an, a, a, an evident career path, but let me put it that way. Um, anything that I could see. I mean, basically, uh, you kind of got shunted off into the home economics track, which right. honestly, to me at that time seemed like it was kind of a women's ghetto. And I apologize if that offends anybody, but I just didn't see that as a direction that I really wanted to go. I mean, so, I was an FHA something, you yeah. know, future, future homemakers of America. Holy yes, yeah, yes. yeah. Well, okay. So when I was uh, in you know, high school, junior high and high school, there wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't a food network, chefs weren't celebrities, um, food culture was nothing like it is today. Uh, our home had a few cookbooks and all of that, but the, you know, there were not hundreds and hundreds of those coming out every year <laughs> and being available. So it was just not anything that I saw as um, a professional track for me. So I went off into um, arts management. I loved the arts and culture and such. And I actually studied studio art and I thought I might be an art teacher. And then I found out there was a field of arts management, which was actually kind of a nonprofit oriented thing of, you know, running the types of arts organizations that do support artists and such. And I thought, well, actually I'm a better administrator than I am an artist. <laughs> so I got off in that direction. And uh, I went to a graduate program at the University of Illinois uh, back uh, in the 70s. And as a part of that job, I had to do an internship someplace. And I always knew from the time I was young that I wanted to live in the Rocky Mountain West. Um, Illinois was a perfectly good place to grow up, but I wanted to be surrounded by mountains. I wanted to be able to do winter sports like skiing and such. And I just knew that I wanted to get to the West. I'd had the nice experience as a kid of, you know, tootling around in the family station wagon around the West when we do the family vacations every summer. <laughs> and right. I knew I wanted to be somewhere like Colorado or New Mexico or maybe Wyoming, someplace out in this part of the world. So I thought when I had an opportunity to uh, take, an, uh, take on an internship in college, that would be my chance to get to the Rocky Mountains. Mountain West. Anyway, I was looking for these internships uh, in graduate school and nothing was coming up that was the right thing for me in any of these mountain states that I had identified. And my program director came to me and said, okay, hear me out on this. 
here's a, a guy who's a real up and comer in this field of arts management. And I think it's exactly the kind of internship you're looking for. I think you would really learn a lot from him. I think you could offer a lot to this agency. And the thing is, it's West, but it's not as far West as you want to go. It's in Oklahoma City. And I thought, <laughs> Oklahoma? <laughs> But I thought, okay, um, they had, you know, money to take me, you know, to send me out to fly out, do a, an interview. And I thought, all right, give it a chance. I did. And in spite of being told that this was a real you know, sharp young guy who was the director of this state arts agency, the Oklahoma Arts and Humanities Council, it was called in that day, I was still expecting somebody older and very bureaucratic looking to come out and greet me. And the person that did come out and greet me <laughs> and greeted me was my future husband. It was Bill Jamison. And he bounded oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's how we met. He was the director of that arts agency and he had long hair and sideburns and all these kind of things I did not associate with that. And he also had these flashing eyes and a great voice. And I, we were not at all really, you know, connecting on a personal level at that point. But I just thought he seemed like such a refreshing character to have as my potential boss there. So anyway, I was hired there to do that internship. I ended up in Oklahoma. I stayed two and a half years and I ended up loving, you know, being uh, in Oklahoma and running around the countryside. And there's some very beautiful areas of the state. Um, but we were kind of ships passing. He was only there about six months and he went on, he was on the, you know, the hot career track and he went on to something else. And I surprisingly stayed you know, two and a half years there. And uh, then I was kind of taken with that part of America and decided I wanted to be in Dallas for a while. So I took another arts related job there all this time I'm cooking, you know, for fun and such, but I'm really on this arts management track. And then in 1980, um, a job opening came up in Santa Fe with a group called the Western States Arts Foundation, which is no longer based here, but it was a very big um, agency that did a lot of, uh, of funding and granting for artists and their organizations back in that era. And lo and behold, I got interviewed and hired again by their new director, a guy named Bill Jamison. <laughs> So we were back together again <laughs> with this whole arts management background. Anyway, that's how we got together. We discovered that we really worked well together. I mean, we were just colleagues for year and friends for years. And I really think that that had a lot to do with us being, when we finally did get together after several years as a couple, uh, that that had a lot to do with how well we could work together and how we were a team. And we were very much a team for our entire uh, you know, marriage. And I had 30 or so years with um, somebody that was this special to me and that was the love of my life and my, you know, I'm not only my business partner, but my co-author and my financial advisor and my everything, truly my everything. So that makes it all the harder to lose that when that, you know, that happens. But what I've found out, and I know you, um, I'm sure, have discovered and many of your guests that you talk to is that, you know, grief is the flip side of, of love. When you have great love, you do have grief and such, and you have to work through that. Um, and I feel like I've been fortunate to have lots of people who've supported me in being able to do that. Oh, that's, um, 
I, that gave me a chill when you said that, that grief is the flip side of love, because we have, you know, I've, we've had guests who have um, experienced the kind of loss that you have. Um, and, and, and they say they would not trade, of course, they would not trade that life. You know, I've, I've interviewed somebody who lost a child and they, it's like, uh, I, however difficult the grief part is, the other part of it is it's well, it's well worth the journey. Um, that's, that's kind of how I, <laughs> not to wax philosophical, but I, but that's sort of how life has turned out for me is that for all the, um, difficulty and sorrow, boy, the other side of it is so full and rich. And all the stuff that I read about the two of you together was that he, Bill was a funny and fun guy who had this huge zest for life. I, I'm sorry I didn't get to meet him. Yeah. I'm sorry you didn't either. Yeah, he was he was a, an original. He was just a really special guy. And uh, yeah, we had such a great time. And we shared a love for so many things, including food and travel and art and culture and all of that. But, um, you know, just um, um, to be able to share all of that and gardening in our house. And and we worked on this place. So uh, you mentioned my dairy barn. <laughs> he found this place back in the 70s. It was the mid 70s. 70s and so here in Tasuke and it's um, part of what was an old dairy and chicken farm back in the 1920s through 40s and it's sort of in the Shadoni area and over on the Shadoni side there were buildings that had been chicken coops really and those were turned into residences and on this side it was like the dairy barn where I am <laughs> and when he uh, first saw the place he wasn't even interested in it because it was such a wreck he couldn't even imagine you know know what you'd have to put into it to turn it into a home but uh eventually he decided it was it was in his budget <laughs> he could get a lot of work done on it and this is funny because some of your uh, listeners will know this era but there was an organization called the armory for the arts here in santa fe that was very active back in the 80s and because he was you know working in the arts he knew all these folks connected to that and, and to do the interior work and and if your listeners won't see this but you can see behind me um, this interior work on the barn was actually done by set designers from the armory for the arts because they were cheaper than a construction crew <laughs> Wow, <laughs> they and were it's his beautiful. friends. Yeah. They came in and yeah, figured out all these different things to do that are really quite dramatic with lofts and fireplaces and and spiral staircases and stuff. So, anyway, it's uh, it's always funny to me that <laughs> he was resourceful enough to figure out how to get that accomplished in a, a kind of a, a unique way. Well, it is beautiful. It's uh, wow. It's it's. And We've worked on it ever since. It's you know, it's a hundred year old house, so it it always requires something. And I love it, though. I'm so glad that I have this place to be. You know, one of the things that was strange to well, strange to me. It probably won't be strange to people who've gone through, you know, loss and 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 all too. But as much as I've loved my home, it was hard for me to be in it for a, the longest time because it just it was our beloved home together and um, it was just hard to be in it. Um, it probably the cruelest thing that happened to me was I took no joy in cooking for a good while. Um, it was not something that 
had been only identified with us as a couple because as I mentioned earlier, I've been cooking since I was a little kid and it's always been my relaxation and my fun and all of that before life switched. And we can talk about that at some point, how we ended up pivoting and finding ourselves in the food profession. But um, it's been you know part of my being forever. And so it was a real shock to me to discover that that was no longer an enjoyable thing. And I think by that time, it had become so much a part of who we were, um, that that identity, um, it just made it really hard. And so that was pretty darn cruel for the longest time. But you just have to, you know, put one foot in front of the other and figure out how to move forward. And there was a thing that happened to me um, uh, months later, it was maybe like five yeah, six months later, he died in the spring. And I was at the Santa Fe Farmer's Market in September. Apple season here. <laughs> and uh, I saw Jonathan apples, which are not a real common apple in this part of the world. They are something I associate with the Midwest and with my mom and my grandparents. And uh, apple crisp was always a favorite family dessert. And I saw Jonathan apples there and I thought, you know, it might be nice to make apple crisp. <laughs> and I bought the apples and they came home and I finally got out, you know, my peeler and my knives and I kind of worked at that. And it was like one little small healing step for me to reclaim that. And it just, it sounds so minor probably, but it was huge at the time. It doesn't. I, um, <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people about that that part of grief and recovery. And I also, my husband now lost his partner before me to the exact same cancer that I have. And he um, was a builder and a creator. And, and he said, for the longest time, he just put that away. That it was like the thing that he did with his body and his mind stopped being an option because he just, you know, it was luckily he had a crew that just kept working and kept making things happen. But I, I'm, I'm pretty curious about that process because there has, you have to have some large chunk of time before. And then I, when you were talking about getting the apples and peeling them and cutting them, it's almost to me like muscle memory, like your heart is still broken but you start, it's like your body takes over and you start doing that thing again that that was so integral to your well-being and, and to your survival. I, I, I'm just, I, don't, I don't understand the process, but I'm really fascinated by it because yeah. it seems like if you could bottle that, if you could figure out a way, um, I, I don't know, I, you know, and, and the way I understood from you when we talked before, when you so graciously offered to read my book and write a blurb, was that um, Bill had had cancer, but then he developed a second. Yes, I mean, we just really got hit with a double whammy. Oh, my gosh. You know, <laughs> he had been diagnosed with... Um, esophageal cancer. And for any of your folks who have, uh, you know, had any familiarity with cancer, that is not one you want to hear. That is usually a very tough one and one that usually does not have a good outcome, ultimately. And I lost my dad to it um, uh, some years earlier. Anyway, um, when that happened, um, it's like, well, 
the the silver lining or so it appeared to us at the time was that it was found um early usually esophageal cancer is found very late uh when it's you know then that's part of the issue with it but it was found at um what i think they call stage two anyway um because he was having some tests for other things and it was and a sharp-eyed doctor caught it anyway um we thought because of that and we you know, interviewed doctors and uh you know key cities around the country that had a lot of experience with that and considered going to md anderson and out to new york to sloan kettering or whatever but we chose the mayo clinic ultimately and you know there is one of those in the phoenix area and at the time um, my mother had lived there she had just passed away <laughs> oh my gosh it was quite a year anyway wow. oh so yeah and in fact we found this out on the Tuesday after my mother's memorial service. Oh. So anyway, it was just like, okay, how many things is this year going to throw at us? But um, we'll, you know, keep on keeping on. So um, we did have my sisters there. We have a number of friends in the Phoenix area. It's an area that is, uh, you know, that we're acquainted with. So it felt reasonably, you know, comfortable to us. Plus we just were so taken with the team that uh, was, you know, being proposed to us to work with at the Mayo Clinic. So we basically up and relocated over there for what we thought was going to be, you know, maybe a four to six month period. And then a few, a few weeks, actually, oh, maybe, you know, six weeks or something into those treatments and everything was going well. And we were having time to be able to, oh, he'd go in for radiation and we could then go wander the Phoenix Botanical Garden and go out and have breakfast or lunch. And for all the trauma of that time, it was actually very peaceful and a very happy time because we had you know, just decided we were not going to focus on anything but each other and getting him through this. And uh, so, yeah, without any of the normal distractions of everyday life. It was a very special period and a very wonderful time together. And then we got hit with another nasty um, reality, and that's that he had de developed a second cancer that was, as far as all those very smart doctors at the Mayo Clinic could recognize, had nothing to do with the esophageal cancer. He developed an acute myeloid leukemia, which is an even more fatal disease more quickly potentially than esophageal cancer. So the treatments had to be switched up. Again, I give those doctors so much credit for um, because they are treated in very different ways. Uh, but the two doctor teams met together regularly to figure out, you know, what they could do that could and work on both cancers simultaneously. And I feel like we had the best medical help we could have had at that time under those circumstances. And this whole period from when this was found, cancer number one was found to when Bill told me he was done fighting and um, went into hospice and he was in hospice two days and passed away and he knew his own mind. <laughs> he was done. And, right. you know, six months was, I felt like a good death. Um, we had the time to be together, to adjust to this reality that with all these treatments, it still wasn't going to work. Um, and that it didn't drag out um, as it can. Um, and we had the time to feel like, yes, that everything was being tried and it's not going to work. So um, he will go gentle into that good night, so to speak. And he did. So <clears throat> that's the, 
It's such a hard story, but what about, um, how did, how did he see life? How did he, um, how, you know, we, we always want to talk about gratitude, but he sounds like he was somebody who just took life by the horns and, and he wrote did, it hard. But he, and he was a realist about it all too. I mean, he was, you know, he, he was 11 years older than me and he was always convinced he would die before me, you know, I mean, which is, yes, it was likely that would be the case, you know, with that much age difference and men not typically living as long as women do and all that. So, I mean, he was always really great at uh, making sure that, you know, I was going to be secure, you know, financially and in every other way, you know, at the point that he was gone, this was well before he ever developed cancer and such. And, you know, it was always hard for me to talk about something like that. But he had a, a real, a very realistic idea that, okay, you know, life is not infinite. And we live it to the best that we can while we're out there. And there's that expression that's something like, um, uh, <laughs> you only get one life. And if you live it right, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like he did that. And I feel like I'm attempting to do that myself, too. Well, I, you know, I have this, um, I, I have this long held belief that um, food is healing. I mean, I grew up, I have this huge extended family and, and everything that we do together, the majority of what we do together is eat. And, um, and it, and it feels to me like you've done that really well um, since you lost him and you do it, you provide it for other people too. Um, I, I tried to, you know, and it's been a real comfort. Once I got over that initial period that cooking wasn't uh, a joy anymore for me and I managed to get back to that. One of the other things that was a part of that, I'm going to segue a little bit here, was just the whole writing thing. And maybe I should back up a little bit because we haven't talked about how we ever even got to this field. Oh, I'd before. love to hear that. I want to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that came out of the fact that um, Bill knew in his mid-40s that he wanted to be out of the arts-related work and just be, you know, just write. And his idea was he wanted to do travel writing. And we always have traveled. And so it seemed like, you know, a, a great match. And uh, that's what he started to do when he left his arts related work, which was at the time that we got married so that I could stay with the organization. And uh, since we didn't think it was great to have, you know, a couple as part of the very small staff that the organization had. So he left and I stayed. And so he started doing this travel writing and we um, uh, managed to, and I say we because it, start, it quickly en encompassed me too, <laughs> because we got all these different opportunities. And uh, uh, he had done a book called The Insider's Guide to Santa Fe um, that was um, one of the first books that anybody really right. wrote that was a travel guide about Santa Fe. And it was back in the 80s. And he was really bothered by, um, oh, the, the sort of glitzy Vanity Fair Esquire magazine portrait that was being uh, portrayed of Santa Fe at that point of just this, you know, she-she destination. And he really wanted to, you know, tell the story that was behind it of the uh, people who, you know, <laughs> are from in this area, the Native Americans, and then the Hispanics who came in later, and then the Anglos who came after that, and and you know, how culture and art played such a big role in this. And of course, food too. So he uh, put that book together, right. and then very quickly it became um, a book that both of us were involved with. And uh, because there weren't any other guidebooks on Santa Fe back in that era, and Santa Fe was becoming a very uh, 
um, hot destination, so to speak. That book um, ended up at the top of all kinds of bestseller lists for years and uh, was a, a real entree for us into other things. And uh, because we live here in the Intermountain West, we like to go to beaches as our, um, you know, getaway. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, I know. Yeah, when we... Um, we uh, were talking to the publisher who was doing the Santa Fe book for us. Uh, we, you know, posed this idea that we'd like to do a beach getaways book, and and uh, he loved the idea. But said, you know, we were going. That's oh, very expensive to think about. You know, doing this all over the world, and we just again serendipity intervened, and he said, well, you know, I've got this. A book that I did, Best Places to Stay in New England. And it's occurred to me that I should make a series out of this. And I've been talking to Houghton Mifflin about licensing it to them. And I, it looks like this is going to work and I'm going to need authors on other areas. So, you know, you're, you're talking about the Caribbean and Mexico and Hawaii. Why don't you do those books in the series? You know? <laughs> What? So, yes, yeah. It's like, oh, sure, we can do that. Uh, and then it was like, you know, later on that day after we left the meeting and we we're jumping up and down on, a, on the bed in the Shoreham Hotel in Washington, D.C., going, okay, how do we do this? <laughs> so... I took some sabbatical time, and um, he had been doing some uh, some consulting work on the side too. So that uh, that fell by the wayside for a while, and we just started concentrating on traveling to the Caribbean, Mexico, and Hawaii, and putting those books together. And uh, yeah, we just you know did it by as I said, I've been good at figuring out, and so was he, you know, of what brings us joy, but also just you know kind of flying by the seat of our pants of going, oh sure, we can do that, you know, and then making sense out of how to make it happen. So we did. And my long story to make it longer is that what people, we got a lot of good, um, uh, you know, sort of feedback on the books and they were well-reviewed and all. People always commented on the food information that was in them. And to us, food has been part and parcel of, of the travel experience. I mean, it's to us, it's part of every experience, but Absolutely. it's a great yes. way to get a sense of the culture of an area that you're traveling to. And, you know, it's just to us always such a special piece of, you know, being someplace. And so, you know, as that was happening, um, it was also kind of timed with a point where it was looking like maybe after a few years, it was going to be time for me to, to leave that arts related job too. And the writing was, there was enough that was coming our way and generating enough income that we thought I could probably, you know, get out of a full-time job and just uh, get into the writing solely as well. And that did mean we were going to have more time. And so the idea kept popping back up of a cookbook and the publisher that we'd been working with was very interested in that. But, you know, in our discussions, it was sort of like, well, nobody knows that we really know enough about food to write a cookbook. I mean, I don't have any culinary training. I'm just totally self-taught. As I said, it goes back to childhood. And I just always loved the process. And I have taught myself everything that I know about cooking <laughs> over many, many years. And it's like, well, okay, that's that doesn't seem like that's really a great credential for doing a, a cookbook. <laughs> so how do we make this work? And um, 
because we had been writing about Santa Fe and people did know that we understood this area, we thought, well, okay, maybe it should be something that kind of deals with food of this particular region. And simultaneously, the Jaramillo family up at Rancho de Chimayo, the lovely Hacienda restaurant uh, with the family that has been there since the, what was among the settling families of the Chimayo Valley some 400 years ago, they wanted to do a cookbook for what was then their 25th anniversary. So we're talking, you know, around 1990. And uh, we just got put together by a mutual friend. It was actually Bill Richardson, who um, was, let's see, I think at that time he was still our congressman. But anyway, right. he knew us, he knew them. And uh, he had been in conversations with both of us about the fact that this might be a direction we were interested in. So he's like, okay, wait a minute, you all need to be talking to each other. And we knew each other sort of, you know, just as visitors to the restaurant to go eat there. But, you know, this that's what actually sealed the deal. And uh, the publisher we were working with was just so excited to come out and uh, go to the restaurant. And all of a sudden we had a, a, a book deal for a cookbook and worked with the Jaramillos on putting that book together. A cute thing I have to tell was that in that era, the cooks were all, you know, women from the village and it was women. And yeah, there weren't any real set recipes. Nothing was written down because everybody who lived there knew how to make carne adevada and green chili sauce and the red chili and, you know, all those typical dishes that the restaurant served. So part of my responsibility was to kind of be, a, you know, in the kitchen, you know, just talking with and observing the ladies and what they were doing to make it consistent, um, you know, in, in terms of something that we could actually write down as a recipe. So I would uh, observe that in the kitchen. Then I'd come back to Tasuki, I'd make a version of it. And then I would drive that version back up to uh, Laura Jaramillo, the daughter in the family and say, okay, does this taste like what the master version of this should really taste like? <laughs> We might do a little tweaking, but uh, that's how we we put together the the initial book and recipes for that. And in the interim, Bill was working with um, uh, the family with their you know some of their archives and you know just he was a historian actually by training. We hadn't actually talked about that. He had a PhD in American history, and so he was so good on that background of things. And so he just loved being able to you know pour through the family files and tell that story of you know how. Uh, that came to be and how the restaurant ultimately came into existence. So that became our first cookbook. And that was going to be our last cookbook. We were just going to write the travel books. But it started getting a lot of critical attention because people were recognizing that we were writing about a regional cuisine that had not been talked about much before in a, in a big national way, um, that this was not Tex-Mex, it wasn't Cal-Mex, it wasn't Mex-Mex. I mean, this was, you know, something, and it is something that is very special to this area. And it's a confluence of, you know, the uh, the Native American, you know, foods here uh, with the chilies and such that, you know, came up with the Spanish. And to be able to tell that story, we just happened to, again, be at the right place at the right time and started getting a lot of attention because we were, you know, giving um, a, a platform to, to new Mexican food at that stage. So that became cookbook one, and it was going to be the only one, but, you know, things intervened. <laughs> right. Right. Here I am 20 later. 
Well, and I got to tell you, one of the one of my favorite things about your cookbooks is that they aren't just a collection of recipes. They're um, they're a collection of stories about, you know, like the Tasty New Mexico book that you did that was so um, full of stories. I mean, if you've never visited New Mexico, but you picked up that book, you'd get it sounds trite, but it's so the 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 title is so true because it's not just a taste of carne atavada and chili rellenos. It's a taste of what New Mexico is all about. So that's, um, I do love all of those stories around food and, and you, you're continuing to do that. I mean, the, the Perini, I'm sorry, I'm saying that wrong. Am I saying that right? The Perini oh, ranch, Perini ranch, steakhouse cook that that's one of those like that. that i've done on my own uh-huh and actually but, with, i mean I, I should say on my own well i did it with the fabulous perinis who have the steakhouse tom and lisa perini who have this place in buffalo gap texas which if you haven't been to folks you should go sometime it is just a gem of a of a steakhouse and so captures uh, a, a, a real experience there um they yeah wanted to do a book and i thought well it'd be such fun to work with them and to tell their story and you know, right I, yeah i've had great fun doing that so that's one of the projects i've taken on uh since bill passed away yes well it seems to me like you, i like your life was take was taking one direction and then serendipitously although you had a passion when you started I mean, you were passionate about food. It kind of reminds me, of, one of my favorite authors is Ruth Reichel, yeah. who um, who didn't start out thinking she was going to be the, the food critic for the New York Times. She just was, you know, working in and waiting tables in kitchens in, in California and then ended up being this amazing writer. And, and I... I love writing about things. I mean, I'm sorry, reading about things that people are passionate about. And you've turned that passion into something that is not, ju not just fun to read and fun to practice the food part, but that's really helpful to people. I mean, cooking with kids. I, so. yeah. I mean, what, what an amazing organization. And you're so involved with that. What's what's Cooking with Kids about? Uh, Cooking with Kids is an organization based here in Santa Fe that uh, uh, is um, dedicated to uh, teaching kids about good food and how to take care of themselves and feed themselves. And um, it's uh, it is based in the schools, but it also extends then into the homes. And there are several different components of it. Uh, there are super chefs who come in and work with the kids in their school setting, so they get to see what um, that's like as a profession. But it's not it's not trying to you know turn kids into chefs it's trying to you know show them uh that there's a world of healthy food that's really tasty and fun and that it relates to everything else they're learning in school whether that's geography or <laughs> um, other things as well too so it's um they do great work and i've been very happy to be a part of that for a good while you know we were talking about um uh you know passion and such and uh, one of the things that when people ask me about this that i you know and had a 
live your life or whatever. And I don't know that I have any particular, um, you know, <laughs> advice that's worth anything. But one of the things I do tend to say is that figure out what brings you joy. What are you passionate about? Um, what makes you feel happy to be alive? And for me, it's, you know, it's food and it's travel and it's art and gardening and reading and skiing and Dodgers baseball and music and my pet chickens. <laughs> I knew, I knew the chickens, too. I knew the yes. chickens were coming um, yeah. at some point, and, you know, and if you're not doing at least most of whatever those things are to you, I mean, start making a plan to get there and do that. You know, that's, um, uh, you know, I've been so lucky to be able to figure out a, a career path uh, that has allowed me to do a lot of these things that bring me great joy and connect all that, you know, connect the dots. But, and also kind of, you know, related to, to that is, you know, have a vision of where you're going. Um, you know, you may modify it. You may sidestep it. I mean, you might have to switch to plan B or to plan D or M <laughs> along the way because things just happen. But you're never going to get there, wherever that there is, without, you know, knowing what's important to you. And, you know, I always thought I was going to work in the arts and enjoy food and travel as a pastime. Uh, and it turns out that I can make my living by well, eating and sleeping around and, <laughs> my, <laughs> and then I can enjoy the art for relaxation. Yeah, but it's all part of my, you know, my whole thing of what makes me feel, you know, excited about life too. Well, and I, I just did a, a retrospective of, you know, I just turned 61. So I wanted to say, you know, 60 years of, of the things I know. And one of the biggest lessons I know is that it's not failure if you don't quit. So if the things you try aren't exactly what you thought they would be, just keep moving because as long as you're passionate about something and seeking joy, I mean, joy is another thing that we talk about a lot. When you've been through the sorts of loss and trauma that you have been and, and the, and then the little bit of health, a health issue that I have, you got to decide at some point that joy is, is a, is, it's not just a byproduct of how you live. It's sort of, I think what you want to strive for. In fact, that's, that's, you know, people say, what are your, what's your word for the year? And, and I've decided joyful is going to be mine mm -hmm. forever. I get that totally. But you have to choose, don't you think? That I, I think you do. And there are people who just don't. And I mean, I just have to choose to try to be happy and to try to live with joy. And that's what makes that that's, that's what centers me. And I'm so you know, and I'm able to see how fortunate I am to you know, have wonderful friends and family. But there's something about resiliency. Uh, I think that's related to that uh, notion of, you know, choosing joy and, and to try to be happy and to move forward with that as your intent do the things that, you know, that make you feel good. Well, and I sometimes, I, I, I'm sometimes concerned that our listeners will say, well, but, you know, look at Cheryl. She gets to be on the Food Network. She gets to talk to all these famous chefs. She's, no wonder her life is joyful. And, and, and what I want to say is, no, no, no. She got to do all of those things because she first chose this path of her passion and, and joy. 
And I think that's how come the other things have come. And knowing that I liked that direction of, okay, yes. Okay. How do I make this happen? And, you know, when I was talking to somebody about doing uh, a radio show about food, it's like, oh yeah. Well, why don't I do that? That I love everything else. Yes. I loved that you um, um, were sitting with Richard Eads talking about how they ought to have a podcast. And um, he said, yeah, when do you want to start? Because because I was interview he we were talking about the Cancer Foundation, Richard, and he doesn't even know he inspires this, but he we were talking about the foundation and I was telling my story and he said, Bunny, I've heard you tell this story three years in a row. You ought to just write a book about it. I was like, there you go. I think I have one at home. I just need to edit it. But yes, but but if you're if you're living your life joyfully and open and um and using that as a, your strategy as opposed to a byproduct i yeah you I, look for the opportunities yes as they present themselves and yeah. they're out there yeah yeah and um yeah and you know you have to be proactive to some degree too um you know any decision you try to duck yeah, that you just ignore. Well, that's a decision in and of itself, you know. And so, yeah, just um, you just we're all going to face obstacles and they're different things. I mean, you know, a death, a job that you thought should have been yours, um, this awful COVID mess that we've all been living through. Um, but, you know, you just have to, again, put one foot in front of the other and just choose that you're going to figure out a way to move forward. And you may sidestep that for here. And there's a step mm-hmm. back now and then. And boy, you know, just when I was thinking about um, talking to you for the podcast, you know, last night, I was kind of, you know, going through all this in my mind. And, you know, yeah, you have these moments where it's like, Oh, my gosh, what happened to my life? No. Right, <laughs> right. You know, I so miss Bill still, it's been six years and, and all of that. But um, uh, there's so much good in my life now, too. And it different way. And I uh, think of things I never would have experienced um, if life would have just, you know, continued to go the way that it was. And I have a lot of uh, people that have come into my life since then that I might not have met. And um, uh, yeah, you just, you know, it's, it's not the same and it's not going to be. And so get on with it (laughs) and just make the best of it. Because as we were saying, you only get one life and just make it the best one you can. Say that thing again. You only get one life. And if you live it well, that's going to be enough. enough. Wow. Wow. Well, I I want you to tell us real quickly what you're doing next, because I know you just got back from months in France. (laughs) I I just had a dream experience. I have uh, been, uh, when I was sitting around during COVID with, you know, less to do because, you know, things weren't, uh, you know, oh gosh, magazines weren't hiring. And, and I was, I was really tired from having taken on like three different book projects just myself since Bill died. And I just wanted a little bit of time to sit and ruminate and think about what I did next and all. And so COVID gave me that time. <laughs> you know, there was a right. lot, not a lot yeah. else going on. So I thought, okay, um, when I can travel again, where do I want to go and what do I want to do? And one of the things that, um, 
that Bill and I had done for um, a, a decade uh, back in the 2000s um, into the, well, the, the 90s into the 2000s was um, take small culinary groups to the south of France. And it wouldn't be just cooking school. There would be, you know, cooking classes as a piece of that, but it'd be a sort of a full rounded experience of that particular area of France. And we'd, you know, go to the butcher shops and the markets and, and all, but do the sightseeing. And that was in the Dordogne region, which is where the Lascaux caves are. And so we'd see those and uh, just, you know, go out to eat as well as, um, you know, eat in the meals that we were preparing with our little group of eight or so. And um, that had stopped um, actually while Bill was still alive uh, because as had become ill and, and, and they subsequently sold the property and all. So that was a piece of life that had kind of disappeared. And after Bill died too, I kept thinking, you know, I would enjoy doing that again if I found the right circumstance, but it needed to be a whole different area and different place. And uh, several, yeah, let's, I guess it's been like three years ago now, I had uh, gone to the South of France uh, by myself on vacation. And I met up with a, a women's tour group for some of those days. And I m met the woman who had organized that and I really hit it off with her and we started scheming about whether we could maybe do culinary, you know, trips uh, under the auspices of her company uh, because she's licensed there in France and she's, you know, she's been living there uh, for years. She's French Canadian by birth, but um, she's had the company for 10 years and it's like she was doing no culinary tours. And so it just, again, was kind of the serendipitous thing of, okay, here's my chance and I'm going to take that and I'm going to do that. So that is one of the pieces that started this great long fall adventure. We had been putting off doing one of those trips and then it finally was able to happen in early September. September and it was kind of touch and go there as you know, the as COVID was raising its head again and all, but we managed to go. And I also had a trip that I had been planning to go on as a uh, with the International Folk Art Market. I had booked a trip to Egypt and Jordan with them, and that's been you know a couple of years ago too. So that managed to get rescheduled for November, and. So I thought, okay, well, that's, you know, two great overseas trips. And then my husband's family, um, there are people who live in Ibiza, uh, one of the Spanish islands that wanted to do wow. a get together. We wanted to uh -huh. scatter some ashes um, of one of Bill's nieces and also Bill's if we could manage all of this. And I thought, okay, that's going to be October. Well, why don't I just stay? So what else would I want to do if I was going to have this kind of fantasy chance to spend this much time overseas? And I've always wanted to get to the Mediterranean islands of um, Corsica, Sardinia, and Sicily in particular. So I also had a visa as a part of, you know, this family thing. And so it's like, okay, they're, you know, if you look at a map, they're right in the middle of the, the Mediterranean. It looks like they'd be easy, but they're hard to get to. So I thought, okay, I've got the time. I, I can spend the time getting between all these island destinations, whether that's by ferries or it's planes or, you know, whatever it takes. So yeah, I, I did France. Um, a friend met me there 
my friend Barbara Templeman here locally. We got a Paris mm -hmm. apartment for two weeks um, as a fun thing to do. I did the Ibiza family thing. Um, then I, you know, traveled through the Caribbean island, or excuse me, the Mediterranean <laughs> islands that we were talking about. Um, hopped up to Rome, uh, ran, you know, met up, up with a friend who was going to be there, and uh, then went on over to Turkey. As I had a week to kill before it was time for the Egypt and Jordan folk art market trip. So my friend who was going to join me for that said she could come over a week ahead. So we spent time in Turkey and so did all of that. And then another trip I had booked with the International Folk Art Market was rescheduled for right after Thanksgiving. So I came back literally a couple of days before Thanksgiving, um, washed my clothes and then repacked them and went to Mexico on this other folk art market trip. And that's what I just returned from a few days ago. So I've had a fabulous fall all over. And now that I'm home, I'm going to figure out what book project or I've got a couple of TV things in the works and, um, um, you know, see what I do when I grow up. <laughs> and this is the cool thing. I saw, I listened, you just did a podcast from Oaxaca. So you're in Mexico on this trip and you just sort of segue into um, doing this podcast at a restaurant. And I thought, wow, I, I listen, my life is pretty, pretty amazing. But I'm like, I want to step in your shoes for a couple of months. Although it, it sounds fun. It sounds yeah, I, like so much fun. Yeah, I did some radio broadcasts from let's see from Paris and from the south of France. And let's see one from Rome. Oh my gosh, um, one from Cairo. It, it was just a it was fun to figure out how to make that happen. And we did. Um, yeah, the last one of the as we were laughingly calling him the global edition of heating it up. That's my radio show on Hutton Broadcasting, folks, if I can put in a, a plug please, for that. Please, please. It's, yeah. uh, it's um, if you listen to actual live radio, it's on AM 1260 and FM 103.7. It's always streamed at santafe.com and it is podcast later uh, at the same source at santafe.com. And when it airs live, it's on Saturday afternoons from three to four mountain time on those radio stations and the streaming. So listen in if you get a chance. We talk about all kinds of things about food. It's called heating it up. Well, <laughs> we do. I, I, I'm really excited to to hear, you know, I want to know what you decide you're going to be when you grow up. But I also, I we could talk about this sort of stuff for hours. So I hope you'll consider coming back. Um, I would do I just, that. And you and I, I just need to have lunch or wine. Oh, or I, I can't yeah. wait. Let's do yes. both. Let's have okay. lunch All of the and above. wine and um, talk about food. I have, an, I have a, an idea for a little local cookbook I'd like to do for Eastern New Mexico. I think it could be fun. But um, other than that, I just, I, I want folks to hear that life can be joyful after loss and that it's, um, it's just a, a matter of figuring out what you're passionate about, don't you think? I think entirely. Yeah. Know, you know, know yourself and figure out again what, what things bring you joy and then work 
the hardest you can at making those central to your life. And you may have another kind of job that supports the things that you, you know, you, you can do. I'm lucky that I was able to over time. I mean, I loved my arts related work, you know, when I was doing that, I was very passionate about that, but um, I just feel like I, you know, woke up in some kind of dream that uh, we were able to turn our love for travel and then for, you know, food into a career that has actually, you know, been very successful. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? But, but wow, wow, what a success. What an amazing Thank success. Um, we'll do this again. Thank you so okay. much. Yes. It's good to spend the time with you and your listeners. It is. Okay. It is. Thank Bye you now. so much. That's all we've got today, friends. I want to thank you for joining the Life Saving Gratitude podcast with your host, Bunny Terry, that's me, and my producer and assistant, Johanna Medina. We feel like we're in the business of sharing the stories that save us, and we hope you'll share as well by letting your friends and family know about the podcast. Follow and like us wherever you listed, and please take the time to leave a review. Whether it's a stellar comment or a suggestion, we are open to suggestions all the time. Also, follow us on Instagram at LifesavingGratitudePod. You can also follow me personally at Bunny Terry Santa Fe. You can sign up at my website at BunnyTerry.com to receive weekly emails about how to become the ultimate gratitude nerd. Thanks so much for checking in.